There is a famous story in the book of Exodus where God offered to grant Moses whatever he wished. So Moses asked God, show me your glory. But God said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see my face and live. Instead, God said, while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by, and then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my backside. And from that day on, God's glory has been the butt of many jokes and the source of a multitude of wisecracks, pardon my pun. Jewish rabbis and Christian theologians have garnered untold enjoyment from this story. What a surprise it must have been for Moses to learn that he would receive his greatest wish only to hear the words, Behold the backside of God. Don't let anyone tell you the Bible does not have a sense of humor. God's full glory may be incomprehensible to us, but we know for certain the Almighty has a riotous sense of humor. Glory is an interesting phenomenon, a ubiquitous word found throughout the Bible and regularly on the lips of people of faith. For generations, we've sung hymns with words like, to God be the glory, or God of grace and God of glory, gloria in excelsis Deo, and of course, glory be to the Father, that doxology. But what do we mean when we sing glory? Typically, we imagine it is an offer of praise and exaltation. Glory is a recognition of the majesty and grandeur of God that appears as a brilliant and blinding light. Yet glory has also migrated from our sanctuaries onto our radios. Peter Cetera saying, we did it all for the glory of love. Bruce Springsteen sang, Glory Days. Lady Gaga sang, I'm on the edge of glory. John Legend sang, One day when the glory comes, it will be ours. Glory has become a theme in pop culture, in pop music, where it refers to fame, honor, power, distinction, or prestige. Glory. The, the quest for glory. However, it's probably more accurate to call this pop culture attitude vainglory, which ethicists have described as the human-centered misappropriation of glory, the shadowy underbelly of glory, which, if left unchecked, has disastrous consequences. This week, David Brooks wrote an article entitled, Why Mass Shooters Do the Evil They Do, where he rejects the standard media refrain that mass shooters must be mentally ill and instead turns toward vainglory as the common denominator. He writes, the ones who become mass shooters decide they are supermen and it is the world that is full of ants. They decide to commit suicide in a way that will selfishly give them what they crave the most, to be known, to be recognized, to be famous. They craft a narrative in which they are the hero. The world is evil and they will stand up to our world. They say our world is in catastrophic danger and they imagine that it is black people or Jewish people or women who are destroying us and it is their job to strike back. And he goes on to say these internet-fueled narratives have an arousing power that make them feel righteous and strong and significant. 
And for people who sometimes have felt impotent all of their lives, guns seem to provide an almost narcotic sense of power. Perhaps it is the pleasure they feel posing with their guns that pushes some of them finally over the edge. Guns, Brooks says, are like serpents in the trees whispering to them. They begin plotting their rampage. It's a theatrical performance. They want to be as public and as spectacular as possible. They tell people, they post videos, they count themselves members of a brotherhood of killers and wallow in delusions of grandeur, delusions of glory. Vainglory is the opposite of the glory ascribed to God throughout Scripture, which causes me to wonder, perhaps we do not actually understand the biblical idea of glory. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod, which has been described as the most peculiar word in the entire Bible. It appears over 200 times in the Hebrew Bible and even serves as the name of God in the book of Jeremiah. Yet from its origins, kabod has always had a double meaning. It is far more than meets the eye. There's an amazing complexity to this word, kabod. It did not originally mean honor or dignity or grandeur. That's not what it meant in its original terms. Originally, it was a term of measurement that meant weighty, heavy, substantial. Only later did kabod take on the meaning of honor, dignity, and grandeur. And there's a reason for this evolution of meaning found in ancient Near Eastern literature. The kings and queens of ancient Canaan had more wealth than everyone else. And in those days, wealth was not paper, stocks, or electronic accounts, but actual silver and gold, treasure, bounty they had acquired. It was heavy to carry around. In addition, because royals and elites had more money than everybody, they could also get more food and drink than everybody else, which made them appear literally heavier than everyone else. Not to mention, like Saul, many people chose their leaders based on their size and height, the bigger the batter to intimidate the enemy. So the word kabod, which means heavy or weighty, began to be used to describe royals. Kings, dignitaries of high renown who demanded honor and respect. And henceforth, a new meaning of the word kabod was born. Only later was the word kabod then taken up to describe the glory of God, who was understood then later to be the heaviest and weightiest dignitary of all, the greatest king. Personally, I like the original meaning of the word glory much better than what it became. Whenever I'm having a day where I'm feeling a little overweight, I can look at myself in the mirror and say, Ben, you are looking glorious today. <laughs> so glorious. You all should try it. And someone you, you love complains about their weight, just say, you look glorious. So glorious today. This is just me in all my glory. Glory can be a defense against shame, a term of endearment, a way to reclaim our beauty and offer ourselves grace and affirm our bodies. Glory can be a term of radical self-love if we so choose. If we could remember that heavy things are glorious and glorious things are heavy, maybe we could get a little closer to grasping what it means to talk truly and honestly, authentically about the glory of God. Like the word glory... The word heavy is a polysemitic word with multiple meanings. Heavy can describe 
what something weighs, but it can also be a term of importance or significance. That's heavy. Heavy can also mean serious or grave. It can be an emotional word that means burdensome or deep. When someone describes a difficult situation to us that they're facing, we can often say, wow, that's heavy. And glory also contains all that multitude of meaning. I had a conversation with my friend, Rabbi Asher Knight at Temple Bethel, this week about the Hebrew word kabod, and he told me that in the Jewish tradition, they hold together two sides of this word glory, two sides of kabod, the honor of it and the weight of it. By thinking about glory, not simply in terms of grandeur, but also responsibility. He told me that in the Ten Commandments, I did not know this until he told me that this this week, the words honor thy mother and father in Hebrew, in the original Hebrew, are actually kabod thy mother and father. Glorify thy mother and father, which is odd. They could have said love. There are plenty of love commandments, but for some reason God didn't tell us to love our parents, but to glorify our parents. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that's heavy. Everyone knows how hard that is to do. Rabbi Knight said, there is a weight and a heaviness and a gravity that is already built into the word kabod, the concept of glory. The fifth commandment is not actually about exalting your parents or putting them on a pedestal, but about respecting the two sides of glory, honoring and respecting our parents and taking on the weight of responsibility and accountability for our parents. This is especially true for people who have difficult or broken relationships with their parents. If we can expand our understanding of glory, then perhaps we can still glorify our parents even when things are fraught or heavy. Because glory contains that heaviness. Glorifying someone is not only about honor, but also carrying the weight of responsibility and accountability for a relationship as well. The same is true in our relationship with God. There are two sides to glorifying God. There is honor, praise, reverence, worship, and there is also, if we're honest, there's also a weight to it, a heaviness to any relationship with God, a gravity and a seriousness to it. No one has a relationship with God from birth to death without difficulty. That's why we call this a journey of faith. Everyone faces periods of doubt or total disbelief or apathy. In her final memoir, Mother Teresa said that she felt no presence of God whatsoever, not in her heart or in the Eucharist, for a period of 50 years. 50 years. Everyone goes through periods of bleakness, desolation, deconstruction, dark nights of the soul. But it's still glory. Because glory is not only hallelujah, but also hallowed be thy name. Glory is not only hallelujah, but holy, holy, holy. Glory is not only hallelujah, but how long, how long. Glory is not only hallelujah, but how could a loving God Glory is not only hallelujah, but how can this be happening? Glory is not only hallelujah, but how can I go on like this? Glory is not only hallelujah, but holy hell, this is hard. Glory is not only hallelujah, but also carrying the heaviness, the weight of life. Because the glory of God, as Irenaeus once said, 
is the human being fully alive. Fully alive. It's all glory. The question is, for us, can we hold it together? Can we hold together the hallelujah and the heartbreak? Glorifying God is a precarious activity. It should not be entered into lightly, casually, or unadvisedly. Our story in 1 Samuel 4 offers a prime example. The Ark of the Covenant was the embodiment of God's glory among the people, and it was so heavy, they literally had to carry it around, multiple people. However, in this story, the leaders of Israel made a poor decision and sent the wrong people to carry the Ark into battle. We skipped over this part in the text that you read, so you may have missed it. But instead of sending their most responsible representatives, the most faithful people they could find among them, they sent Eli's wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who had been engaged in horrific behavior up until this point, abusing their power as the sons of the chief priests, and would not even listen to their father Eli when he came and chastised them for their behavior. They could care about no one. They, they could not be candled by anyone. And when these unrepentant and glorious scoundrels were given or took upon themselves the highest honor of carrying the glory of God into battle with the Philistines, there were grave consequences. The ark was captured. The army was destroyed. The people were lost. And the only prophet in the story, Phineas' wife, who doesn't even get a name, proclaimed with the birth of her son that the glory of God had departed from Israel. I think it's no surprise, of course, that the only woman in the story is the only person who had any idea what was going on. Not the chief priest Eli or his corrupt sons, but a woman with no name who became the voice of Israel. She named her son Ichabod as she died, which means really, where is the glory? A question really about the future of Israel. A question about the future of the presence of God's glory among the people. Will it be with us? Where has it gone? Will it ever come back? If we were to give Phineas' wife a name, it might be Shekinah, the feminine word for the glory of God. There is a weight to the glory of God a seriousness, a gravity, a heaviness. There are duties, obligations, and responsibilities that must be attended to, accountability that must be respected. One cannot carelessly allow the most wicked people to carry the glory of God around into battle or anywhere else, or it will be captured by the enemy, as it was in this story. As the glory of God has been captured and stolen so many times before throughout history by powerful elites and rulers and empires, as it has by white evangelicals in America today. We are living now in a time where it feels as if the glory of God has departed from us and everything feels heavy. We are living with the heaviness of wars raging in Yemen, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Ukraine, and Myanmar. New waves of pandemic variants, BA4, BA5, the Supreme Court stealing our freedoms, a dangerous heat wave in the South, rising inflation, economic disparity, housing insecurity and hunger, a growing movement of white Christian nationalists threatening our democracy, continued attacks on transgender people, police shooting an unarmed black man 60 times in the back, and an ongoing scourge of gun violence in places like Highland Park.
the news, the world, our lives. Everything feels heavy right now. As if the law of gravity itself has shifted and is bearing down on us with an intolerable force, making it difficult to stand, let alone worship or pray. We all feel like the Israelites did when the ark was captured by the Philistines, like Phineas' wife when she named her child Ichabod. We're asking ourselves, where's the glory? Where is the glory? Wondering if the glory of God has departed from our lives and our communities and our nation forever. Asking ourselves, where is the glory? And it's kind of the same as asking the question, where is God? A question many have asked throughout their lives. Our world right now feels God forsaken. And yet we also know of that deep spiritual promise of Emmanuel, consistent from the beginning to the end of the Bible, that God is and will always be with us. Can we hold these two together? The sense of God forsakenness and the sense that God is with us in the midst of it. There is a scholar who says that giving glory to God is like raising a weight above our heads. Prayer and worship, a relationship with God feels like lifting a weight over our heads. And after a few thousand times of doing that, we get tired and have a hard time lifting anymore. When we glorify God, we also feel the weight of a downward force bearing upon us at the same time as we are lifting up, which is why it doesn't actually get easier To give glory to God over the course of our lives, as so many have said, it actually gets harder and harder the longer that we do it. Yes, we can build up strength and stamina, but the weight keeps increasing with ever unfolding struggles in our lives. More questions, more wondering, where is the glory? Pain and suffering have the power to turn our human imagination sideways, which is why we imagine that the heaviness of God always, the heaviness of the world always signifies the absence of God. But what if all the weight of the world is actually just the other side of God's glory? Kabod means weight, glory. Glory is heavy. There is praise and lament, joy and struggle built into the same word. What if the weight of the world is not just a burden on our shoulders, but a reminder of our responsibility to live lives of love and justice, regardless of how heavy everything is, no matter what is going on in our world? I believe that this is what the writer C.S. Lewis was trying to convey when he ascended the pulpit at the University Church of St. Mary in Oxford and delivered a sermon that some consider to be the most insightful in the 21st century. The 20th century, excuse me. Lewis said in that sermon, it is the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory that should be laid daily upon my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it. And the backs of the proud will be broken by it. It is a serious thing, he says, to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember the dullest and most uninteresting person that you talk to may one day be a creature who you would strongly be tempted to worship, or else a horror such as you will only meet in your nightmares. All day long, he says, we are trying to help people move to one of these destinations. 
It is the awe of these overwhelming possibilities we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all love, all play, all politics. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, those are mortal. And their life is to ours like the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke and work and marry and snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean, he says, that we are to be perpetually solemn. But our merriment, he says, must be the kind that exists between people who have taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Our charity must be real and costly love with deep feeling. No mere tolerance or indulgence of parodies of love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to God, he says, our neighbor is the holiest object of glory that we will ever see or hear or touch. What if, what if we treated each other, our neighbors, like the glory of God? What if we lived as if our neighbor's glory was our responsibility, our weight to carry? Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Yet there is a toxic version of Christianity that acts like God's glory has departed from us and it's every person for themselves. A kind of monstrous religion that worships itself and its own tribe with no concern for their neighbors or the rest of humanity. An inglorious tradition that treats those made in the image of God as if they were less than human. But this is not our faith. Our faith as Paul described, is a treasure we hold in clay jars, an extraordinary power that belongs to God and does not come from us, which is why we can be afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying the weight, the weight on our bodies of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may become visible to all other people in the rest of the world. For slight momentary afflictions, Paul claimed, are preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond measure. And in the meantime, God has called us to become new creations and given us the ministry of reconciliation, the gift of working together as people who are striving to put the world back together again. Yes, the earth is charged with the glory of God, and that means everything is charged with both sides of glory, both the beauty and the burden, the hallelujah and the heartbreak, the wonder and the weight of it all. Our glory as individuals does not come from fame or fortune, honor or heritage, respect or renown, pride or prestige. Our glory is not how big we are or how brightly we shine. Our glory comes from the weight of the world on our shoulders and how we choose to carry it. Our glory comes from the gravity of God and how we choose to bear it. Our glory comes from the needs of our neighbors and how we choose to take responsibility for it. As Howard Thurman once said, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. We are the glory of God. The glory of God is a human being fully alive and all the joys and the struggles that come with it, which means if we can live our lives for the sake of each other's liberation, 
If we can live our lives for the sake of each other's flourishing, if we can live our lives for the sake of helping people come alive, then the weight of God's power and presence will never depart from us. And we will not have to ask ourselves, where is the glory? Where is our God? Because it will always be right next door. Amen.